So uh, tonight's lesson is a little bit kind of connected to what we were talking about on Sunday. Uh, but I want to talk about from generational curse to generational blessing. Okay? So let's start heavy. And then we'll, we'll build up from there. Okay? So last year in 2017, I learned a principle that profoundly helped my marriage and profoundly helped a lot of my relationships. Okay? And it was this little thing called the law of conflict. Okay? And basically the, the theory is this. Uh, now, it was applied first in marriage, but then as I was working on it in my marriage, I realized it applied to most of my conflicts in most of my relationships, which was this, that when you're having a conflict with someone, 10% of that conflict has to do with what's happening right now, and 90% of what's going on has to do with what has already happened to you way back in your past, okay? Now, that, that's an especially very helpful principle to remember in conflict with your spouse, right? Because when you're mad at your spouse, and they, she has done something that's really hurt your feelings or is really disappointed in you, where does all your energy and all your focus go on? Her, right? She blew it, right? Or if we're single and we have conflicts with other guys, right? They do something that gets on our nerves or whatever. All that energy, all that focus, and a lot of your thoughts are going to be on what? How wrong that other person is and how dare he and why did he and I can remember five other times that he did that and so our mind just gets all consumed right so this little rule was actually really helpful because then whenever I had conflicts with Cece or even with my kids I kept trying to remember okay hold on Dave calm down take a breath 10% of what's really going on has to do with what she just did or what my kid just said, or why that brother's not calling me back. 10% has to do with that, and 90% of it may have to do with some other issues that are making that issue seem like such a big deal, okay? Now, that principle I want us to think about because I think I found this in the Bible. Not, not the 90-10 thing, don't worry. It's, I'm not stretching the Bible that far, but I'm saying this whole issue of how your past influences your present, it's totally there. Now, let's look at this first. In Romans 7, Paul is saying, So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, how many of us have read that passage before? How many have ever been confused by it? Thank you. Well, okay. There's people here smarter and deeper and more spiritual than I am. That's great. But my point is... When I read this, I'm like, well, I don't get it. So it's like, how do you win? Because it's like, you're saying you're the problem, and yet there's good in you as well, and what's this thing? But when I saw this whole conflict thing, I, I thought, I started reading that passage a little bit differently. That, you know, there's a little part of me that really wants to do what is right. But I got all this other stuff. We could call it evil. We could call it my baggage. We could call it my history, right? 
that I've practiced for years that usually creates my first response to a lot of things. You know, in recovery, we had this very helpful expression. The expression is this, your first thought is usually wrong. <laughs> Just write that one down right now. Okay, my first thought is wrong. And that's generally true because guess what? That first thought is probably going to be laced with defensiveness or offense or history or, you know, that reminds me how my dad used to talk. So that first thought is usually a little dirty, a little messy. But sometimes it's that second thought or that third thought or that fourth thought that might actually be a response closer to Jesus. A little closer to the truth. Does that make sense or, or resonate? So when you're having conversations with people, just if they say something, go, you know, bro, that first thought was wrong. You should give me your second thought. No, don't do that. That's not good. That's not good. Okay. So now, you remember last year, we spent some time last year talking about spiritual formation. Does anybody remember when your spiritual formation began? Very boy. Misha was paying attention. That's right. Your spiritual formation has been going on from the moment you started breathing in this life. So think about that. Now, I became a Christian when I was 22 years old. 22 years old. So think about how much did I practice my version of spiritual formation up until the moment I got baptized. 22 years, right? It wasn't like occasional, like every once in a while I did some spiritual stuff. No, every breath I took from birth to 22, that was all my spiritual formation, often going way off track. And when I got off track, I didn't just stay off track and come back real quick. I stayed off track sometimes, in some ways, for years. I remember when I was in this abusive uh, relationship in high school, I can remember there was not a day that I did not outright, blatantly lie to my parents. Because I was hiding this abusive relationship that I was involved in. So just every day, now think about that. If you practice something every day several times, are you going to get good at that? Is that just going to be a light habit? No. No. <laughs> That's going to stick around for a while. And guess what? Just because I got baptized a couple years later, did that... That, that ability to lie, did it just vanish in the waters of baptism? No, that, that was part of my spiritual formation for 22 years. It's the way I rolled. It's the way I formed and used and, and managed and manipulated my character in all these dark and twisted ways. So this principle right here, the 99-1, what I'm trying to say is try to remember that your spiritual formation was going on your entire life until you got baptized. Which means 99% of it is probably the way David did things. And from the moment I got baptized, I started at 1%. And what are we doing all our whole Christian lives? We just keep trying to add to that percent, right? We're trying to do the right spiritual formation things. And, and this time, instead of lying all the time, I'm going to really practice telling the truth. I'm going to do that once. I'm going to do that again. I'm so glad I have my small group because I get to keep practicing telling the truth 
over and over again. And guess what happens when you tell the truth over and over and over again? You know what happens? This thing shows up called character. But guess what? Character doesn't come come out of baptism. Out of baptism. Right? It takes you being in that spiritual formation process to get over that 99 that you built up until the point you got baptized. Now this isn't bad news. This is really good news. Because in Christ Jesus, in His community, and with the Holy Spirit, guess what? We are more likely to be on the correct spiritual formation path. Unlike the one where I was guessing in the wind, taking care of David all the time. Alright, let's look at one more thing. Well, a couple more things. The law of David formation. Okay, now I, I don't know how, how this works with you, but I think for many, many years, this is how I looked at my spiritual life. I didn't look about spiritual formation. I just saw, you know, every day it's a little bit of a crapshoot, but more often than not, I, I probably do the right thing a little bit more than the old stuff. And yeah, I'm sinning less. Do you guys play that game sometimes? Yep. Right? And, and, you know, every day you just think, well, I, today was good enough. I was a little better. Or I'll compare myself to my, my old days and go, well, gosh, I'm a heck of a lot better than I used to be. Right? Now, do you notice one thing in common with both sides? Right. It's me. Right? New and improved Dave. Bad old Dave. But good new Dave. Right? And who am I focused on? Dave. What did Einstein say? That the same mind that created the problem is often not going to be the mind that creates the solution. But this is the game I don't want us to be trapped in. Just kind of, you know, I'm a little better than I used to be. Right? I'm improved. You know, this is not what we're going for. Our goal is one word. Jesus. And that's, that's not a condemnation. That's not like, oh, see how much you suck and look how good Jesus is. That's not a condemning thought or an idea. No, that's a calling. Jesus says, you are, God says, you are beloved, and please keep your eyes on my son. Keep your eyes on my son. I promise you will not be you. You will be me in the flesh. I loved Sunday. Seth talked about a lot of painful stuff. There, there were some things that he said that I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, how, how are people hearing this? That, that's, that's really heavy, that's really dark. But what was so cool was how completely real he was about the stuff that was hard and the stuff that was painful. But then when he talked about the answer, Curtis was like Jesus in Seth's life. Curtis wasn't like Curtis. Curtis was like Christ. That is what made the difference. And if you notice, the end result was not how awesome Curtis was. Curtis is awesome. Yeah. But what Seth made really clear was, no, that relationship helped me understand even more clearly how amazing Jesus is and how amazing Jesus is in his life, how amazing Jesus is going to be in my life, and how amazing Jesus can be in other people's lives now that I see this. It's beautiful. It was really good. Luke 14. 
we, we probably know this one, but remember this. Jesus said, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. So when Jesus talks about your own life, what is he talking about? Way of living. Okay, so being about me, right? Like selfishness or pride or something like that. What else? Your values. Anything else? If I died tonight, what about me would die? There it is. My will. Your body. My body. All my organs would just stop moving, functioning, right? Your belief systems and opinions. My opinions, right? My thoughts, my ideas. All that stuff would be gone, Mike. Your plans for this world. My plans for this world. So I'm just saying, when we read this, and you guys know my pet peeve about this, some of these things you got to read really slow to make sure you really get it. Oh, yeah, I gave my life to Jesus. Hold on, man. Stop and think for a minute. <laughs> you need to hate your own life. So going back to that whole old me, new me, what he's trying to say, I think, is I need to be careful that it's not David trying to be a better David. It's David trying not to be David at all anymore. It's David trying to be Jesus all the time. And it's interesting what he said, right? He says, right after that, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Now, what was crucified on the cross? Your sins, right? So that little cross that I got to carry, that's putting all my sins, leaving my sins on the cross but when I don't have that focus right what I end up doing is I start taking some of my sins back so you know what the way that I want to handle this situation that's really difficult and really pressing on me I want to take back my impatience or you know what I want to take back my anger just a little bit because I think that would help me a little bit more in this situation than the way Christ would do it or, you know what, I'm going to take a little bit of gossip. You know, I haven't gossiped in a long time. It was kind of a high school thing. But, you know, gossip right now and talking about what I'm going through to somebody else about somebody else, that might give me a little bit of relief, a little bit of comfort. So, Jesus, let me take that back. Jesus said, you need to carry that cross every day. You gotta leave that on the cross so that you can be my disciple. You can be a learner of me and get more and more transformed by how you are becoming like me. Not trying to preserve or, God forbid, just trying to improve you. Jesus was not a ministry of self-improvement. His was a ministry of transformation. I don't care if you got baptized at 15 or at 50 
all that spiritual formation that happened until the moment of baptism, guess what, guys? It all changes now. I want to transform you. That's his invitation. That's his promise. So the law of spiritual formation, I'm trying to remember this. I think this is sort of what Paul was talking about in Romans 7. That the law of my spiritual formation today, it's 99% of the time, it's probably going to be David thinking about David first. Right? But I've got to let Jesus be the option. But if I forget this, right, I'm going to start minimizing my preferences. I'm going to minimize some of my reactions and just think, oh, I'm a disciple and everything's good. No, I've really got to choose. David, deny yourself. What would Christ do in this moment? What would Jesus say in this situation? How would Jesus respond right now if he got spoken to that way by that other person? The story of a curse. Now, I want to go a little macro a little bit, biblically, okay? I want to look at a curse, and I want to show you the grand journey of one curse, okay? So, we know what this is Genesis 9. So, this is after the flood. And I heard a theory today that some speculate that wine prior to the flood was not able to ferment. So, this may have been the first time that wine actually had alcohol in it. So some are saying that may have had something to do with the fact that Noah got drunk, is that for the first time wine was, for, I don't know, it's a theory. I just thought that was interesting, but whatever. So when Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, he said, cursed be Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Now you can read Genesis 9 to get more of the details, but basically what happened, he was drunk, he was naked, the youngest son looked at his son, looked at his dad naked, and they say that he delighted in telling his other brothers about it. Which basically meant he didn't treat his father with honor. But then his other two brothers, when they got word of that, they went in and took covers, didn't even, they looked the other way to make sure they put no shame on their father and covered him. So they handled the situation very differently. But when Noah became aware of this, he went all out. I don't know if it was a hangover or whatever, but he decided, I'm cursing. I'm cursing this son. Okay? Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn. Now, who did he curse? Canaan, who was the firstborn of Ham, who was the actual son that did this. Okay? So, Canaan was the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and of the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Gergeshites, Hivites, Archites, Sinites, Arvidites, Zermorites, and Hamathites. I think I said those not bad. Okay, anyway. Uh, later, the Canaanite clans scattered and the borders of Canaan reached from Sidon toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, and then toward Sodom, Gomorrah, Admah, and Zeboim, as far as Laisha. Okay. So, Sidon was the firstborn of Canaan. And the way curses work is that if a person was cursed, that curse would continue to the next offspring, right? Now, it turns out Sidon had a lot of kids. And Sidon's kids eventually became a tribe, a cluster of people. And now let's follow the curse. Now, remember, how did the curse begin? 
<coughs> it began with one event, one conflict. And that one conflict between a father and a son created a curse and watch the story of this curse unfold. The Lord replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. Let them save you when you are in trouble. Okay? So remember we started with one conflict, one curse, one kid. The curse is being carried on. And now suddenly God is referencing an entire group of people. The Sidonians. The Sidonians. This whole group of people that have caused torment to the nation of Israel. We're talking like, you know, international or intertribal conflicts all connected to a curse from years before. Later, King Solomon married several Sidonian women who led him to worship their goddess, Ashtoreth. Anybody remember Solomon? Heard of him? Really wise guy? Gets a little connected with the Sidonians, connected to this curse from way back when, and look at the problem. Look at the pollution. Look at the corruption. Next, the Israelite king Ahab married Jezebel, who became a source of many troubles, again, from the Sidonians. Isaiah predicts the Sidonians will find no rest because of all the wrong they have done. So, this curse has now continued. Now, this, this behavior, this corruption, this evil has now continued for generation after generation. Even Isaiah is saying, this whole group is doomed. But how did it all begin? One conflict. A father and a son. The prophet Jeremiah predicts there will be no help for Sidon. Jeremiah 25 and 47. Ezekiel describes the Sidonians going down in disgrace and bearing their shame. One conflict between a father and a son leading to generations of just ilk torment, corruption, evilness, all this stuff. But now think about it. What are we reading from? This is all the Old Testament, right? All these references, all these stories are being told to the nation of Israel for centuries. So guess what people from Israel thought about people from Sidon? High five, man. No, man. Those people are... They're not just bad. They've been bad for a long time. In fact, you pick a century and I'll tell you bad stuff they did. Right? I can pick from Jeremiah. I can pick from Isaiah. I can pick from Ezekiel. I can show you anything to prove that people from Sidon are pathetic. The law of curses. 
So at some point, any opinion about the Sidonians had so little to do with what was going on now, but had so much more to do with this story, this history. Look how long. Look how many times. Look how big these conflicts were. The story of the curse. When you're stuck in your own story, you can't help others in their story. So, how does this connect with what we were talking about on Sunday? Seth did a really good job of talking about some things that in his life today, well, not today, but before, were conflicts. Real things that happened, real things that were said, real things that hurt, real things that disappointed, just real conflicts. But guess what? Every person involved in those conflicts that Seth talked about, guess what? They have their 90-10 rule as well. 10% of what they were talking about may have had to do something to do with Seth. Right? But 90% of what they did probably had something to do with something that had gone on in their past. Some, some curse they inherited. And I appreciate how Seth even, Sunday, he was very careful the way he articulated this. He said, you know what? I know that in some cases, their intentions were probably good. I mean, I appreciate that. Give, giving them the benefit of the doubt. But nonetheless, it was hurtful. It, it, it was painful. And, and in Seth's case, it was like faith destructive. Right? Seth was hanging by a thin thread when he came to turning point. You know, God, no way. Jesus, maybe. Me, never. I mean, we all felt that, I hope, on Sunday. The way he described that. Now look what happens. Now we're talking about Jesus. Now remember, right? A curse. One curse. One conflict. Father and son. Centuries ago. Now centuries of stories, centuries of examples of how sad and pathetic these people from Sidonia are. What did Jesus do? Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and... Whoa, dude. Whoa, slow down. Wait. Why are you even going near that place? Jesus, read your Bible. Dude, it's so crystal clear. These people are lost. They are pathetic. Then, a Canaanite woman. Who did Noah mention in his curse? By name? Canaan. So, I mean, this is just like, Jesus is just not getting it. He's not reading the clues. Like, go on, Jesus, this is, this is the wrong direction. You're not supposed to go there. A Canaanite woman, not, not even a man, but a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Would any of you like to guess what Jesus did? Well, according to that curse, 
He said, excuse me, can't help you, lady. You're pathetic. You're sad. Look at your history. Read the Bible. You're a lost cause. Jesus took a pattern, a conflict that had been going on for centuries. And he said, guess what? God looks at things differently. God looks at you differently. And the more interesting news is that any person that you have conflict with, guess what? God looks at them very differently. See, I, I really can't put my finger on any curse in my life that has been going on for hundreds of years. I can tell you a few curses that I got directly within my family of origin. I can tell you some very specific hurts that were passed on directly from mom and pop, right? Yet, Jesus is saying, wait, don't look at that. I offer you something more important.